Welcome to What a Word is Worth, a space for creative minds to speak about viable ways to heal the world through writing and other inventive mediums. This is your host, Marianela Medrano. I am the founder of Palabra Training Center, where words are giving us medicine. My guest today is someone whom I admired a great deal from the distance, because she is far away from me, and um, Anne Filmer, who is the pre or doctor, I should say, Filmer, who is the president of Southwestern College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Marianella. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So this is um, this is a podcast where, as I said, we gather to talk about the power of words um, in our lives and in what we do, and also the, the power of words to heal, to, to bring about transformation. In whatever capacity we touch words, um, some of us are writers, some of us are musicians, dancers, and we access the word, words direct somehow what we do. So um, I want to start, start by asking you, if you recall, if you have a sense of your encounter with poetry and the written word, how early in your life and was there a sense that I'm gonna go in this direction because there is substance? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, when I was in second grade, so maybe six or seven, um, mm -hmm. my mother gave me a diary for a gift for my birthday. And those are those little books that have a lock and a little key. <laughs> and I was ecstatic. I don't remember asking for a diary. I don't remember wanting one or thinking about it, but once I had one and I could lock it, mm -hmm. I felt very empowered because I began to take care of my own story to myself. Mm -hmm. so even if I said, dear diary, which I think in the beginning I said, dear diary, but I was talking to myself and I was telling myself, how am I doing? What am I thinking about? What do I want? How do I want to be? What's actually my feelings, which I come from a large family. There were five children. I was the middle child. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of racket. There was a lot of sort of chaotic energy in the house. Um, my parents had a certain level of chaos in their relationship. So I, I had this one very small space that I could record my own being. And that made me aware that I had a being, that mm -hmm. I had a right to my own story, that I had a right to my feelings, that I had a right to my perceptions, what I saw, what I, what I thought when something happened, how I felt about it. And I remember that every day I wrote and I filled it up and then I got another one. And because it had a lock, I felt <laughs> permission. I could tell the truth and um, telling the truth to myself. I couldn't really tell the truth 
to anybody. There was no mm -hmm. friend I could really tell or none of my siblings. Everybody was competing for attention from my parents. We were very crowded and um, there was a lot of competition for resources, mm -hmm. you know, food. My parents didn't have a lot. And so there was not enough. And so the not enough culture was mm -hmm. made us compete with each other for things. So I, I just only had this very small space. And the power of having even a small page in a little tiny book meant I existed and I had a right to my unique existence. Mm, that so, is so beautiful. Yeah, that's the basis for me. Mm. And then, you know, I began as I got able to read and um, go to, I loved libraries as a mm -hmm. little, that was a safe place. And it was a place my mother took us. Mm -hmm. Libraries are very quiet. Mm -hmm. They have a certain organization, you know? So all of that was sort of, you know, the opposite of my home. And it made me feel very calm. Mm -hmm. And I do remember finding the poetry books, you know, in the Library of Congress, you know, system. Oh, the poetry books are over here. And then I could just go. And I remember one of the first books of poetry I really took in was Alice Walker's book mm -hmm. once, her first mm -hmm. book of poetry and I read it and read it you know trying to understand the language the line break the power of the line break the use of word for image the use of word for to evoke something in in the use of metaphor and simile so you say something sort of indirectly but you really get to say it mm -hmm. and so the poetic language then just really woke me up because mm -hmm. it felt like a place where all experience can be captured in a very um, essential form in its mm. essence. Mm. So I began to cultivate a, a love for poetry and then ultimately started writing poetry. By the time I was in junior high, my journals were poetry, you know? <laughs> so um, thank you for, for studying us with these white clothes. Um, with so many beautiful details. I want to go back to the lack in the diary because it's bringing me back. I don't know if you recall when I spoke about the Siguapa, the, um, the uh, mythical figure in our tradition, you know, of this woman who comes in and then she goes in, into the wilderness um, she kind of comes and fetch, fetches whatever she needs and then goes into the wilderness um, for protection. And she has backward feet. So when she's walking in one direction, you know, nobody can follow her. So that to me, your, your lack, uh, that sense of protection um, about being able to uh, the posit into the diary what what you are finding in yourself that you're not ready perhaps to entrust other people with you're putting it there and you're locking it in but it's not a oh this is me but it's is a I'm gonna grow from this kind of yeah. I'm gonna use this as a way Right. And also, I think for me, it was a way to feel free, mm. not to hurt someone mm -hmm. so that I could write critical things mm -hmm. about my mother or my father mm -hmm. or my siblings, mm -hmm. but they weren't going to see it 
And then, then I, then I have to also deal with their reaction to my words. Yes. And so, you know, as we become writers and and we publish our work, Mm -hmm. there's consequences to what we put in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, there's reactions. It's my dog speaking her, her, in her language. She's speaking. She's saying, go on, go on. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think you have to grow enough sort of sense of yourself to feel Mm -hmm. that you put your words into the world. Because mm-hmm. once you publish, once you put your words in the world, some often things are going to cycle back. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people are offended by your mm-hmm. words or mm-hmm. they misconstrue them or they. Um, so I needed a very, very safe place where I didn't have to worry or take care of anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. That I could just be myself fully. Mm-hmm. And, and because I couldn't do that through speech. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that kind of comfortable, permissive, spacious mm-hmm. family life that, or even, you know, I was just like everyone else in public schools and they have very kind of conscripted ways in which you're supposed to verbally interact and what you can mm-hmm. say or not say about your family life. You know, th- there's just so many structures around speech mm-hmm. that in, in that space, I could, I could write my truth and I wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of it. Yeah, that yeah. someone reacted, and then I had to deal with their reaction. Yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, that need for separation, so we can grapple with things and and grow robust to come back and said, "Okay, yeah, let's talk now. Yeah. I have grown up." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say right. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, one one more thing about what you were saying. You know, I you were saying. Um, I'm going to brag now. You were saying, <laughs> I grew up in a large family of five. And I'm like, yeah. And do you want to know how many siblings I have? How many, Marianella? I have 12. Okay. Then I had a, <laughs> I had a medium-sized family. <laughs> no, I but, I can, <laughs> but I can relate to what you're, you were saying in terms of you know, the resources, the allocation of resources, the, the logistics, right, of being a middle child. So do you think, how has that impacted, you know, we talk about, um, especially in, in Buddhism, we're always talking about the scarcity mind and how, you know, it's, it's fetching information from the past, from the lived experiences, and then it impacts um, you know, how we are in the world. So how much do you think, um, and you can go whatever you want with that <laughs> answer, how much do you think the scarcity mind shows up in your created life? Well, that's a great, really interesting question. Mm. Well, one of the places I found plenitude mm-hmm. was in language. Mm-hmm. I found that there's no end like language just continues and that I could rearrange, even if I only had so many words in my vocabulary, mm-hmm. I could rearrange them and restate them. And I could use grammar, commas and periods and just simple to make new <laughs> meaning. So there was like this endless expanse in language. So in language, 
I got plenitude and, and I became a voracious reader as a child just to enter the plenitude of language. And I used to just keep in, um, you know, as I got older in my journals, I would just write down every word that I encountered that I didn't know that I had never heard. And I would, you know, write them down and I would have lists of words and then I would give, go to a dictionary, right? This is, you know, raised in the old school. It's all paper. You know, mm. my first purchase as a 20 year old, when I finally had a job and had my own money, I bought myself this giant dictionary, which I still have, which had the history of words, because there's no end. You see how words mutated and how it meant this. And now it means this. Mm. And there's a new thing happening in the culture. So there's new language for it. And so I got uh, to enter expansive spaces mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. language. I got way opened up beyond whatever limits I experienced, um, you know, sharing a bed or whatever that those mm -hmm. I, I got into. Oh, yes, these spaces might be kind of tight, but these spaces are absolutely there's no I can see past the horizon. I can see so far, you know, Yeah, that was uh, very exciting and liberating. But at one point I was interested in filmmaking and I didn't choose the path because of the expense of film, mm. Mm. you know, so I'm, I feel I'm a storyteller. And at one time mm. I was interested in film as a very potent storytelling medium, but the actual cost. And again, at this time, you know, actual film, it wasn't digital pre-digital world. Mm. I was just like, wow, I can't afford those kind of cameras and that kind of film. And that I, I just went like, I am not going to do my storytelling it's a very affordable to have a pen and a paper or a typewriter or computer. Like those things were affordable or more accessible than an art form that demanded a higher level of financial investment. Uh, so I do think that economic uh, realities mm -hmm. impact mm -hmm. my artistic choices early in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, the other form I was most drawn to was dance. Mm -hmm because I got a body, you know, <laughs> I, I got it. It's right it's here. Free. It's just like, how do I move it? And so the expense in the dance world is the dance classes mm -hmm. and studio time using, you know, the space where there's a sprung floor. So your legs don't get hurt. And mm. so there were costs there too, but I pursued dance for a long time. And for a while I did choreo poems where I did I danced my poems and I performed in that way at, at a certain point in my life. I was, I was interested in that. And I was interested in it because it was body-based mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I had a body. So yeah. it's just to use it in my yeah. own expression. Yeah. But what I'm um, gathering here is that yes, that scarcity mind was there and scarcity mind um, always keeps us on our toes and thinking, uh, I can't do it. It's not going to be enough. I'm not enough. But that you somehow um, were able to pivot into plenitude and that you then, then you stay there. And I'm thinking, I mean, you have such a rich background. Uh, you, you have in that background creative writing, education, administration, holistic health herbal medicine, massage, <laughs> counseling, meditation, right? Like you have, that's the plenitude, right? Yeah. That, that you walk. So tell us, I'm, I'm curious because right now you have a very serious job right. <laughs> as the president of a college. 
How is this background then? Let's let's lean into that plenitude that you're so beautifully highlighting here. How is this background informing your presidency of a college? And you have had so many of the certificates there, at least one I know. Um, How is that um, informing, you know, the richness, the plenitude? informing who you are uh, as president? Well, I think that's a cool question, Marianella. Mm-hmm. You're asking me questions I've never considered <laughs> myself. So I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. You know, I think what it informed is that I can look at what is and I can say, but what is not yet? Mm-hmm. And I'm very willing in my leadership roles, I'm very willing to lean into what is not yet. And then say, how can, uh, what, what might be needed in the space of what is not yet, what does not yet exist, how can I lean into that space and bring something into being? So I do this in my personal life in different ways. Um, I do this with my partner, but I also have done this in leadership roles in higher education. So, you know, I started out just like many people in higher ed, just teaching classes. You know, I was an assistant professor in a tenure track world at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I went through that journey and became, you know, full, got tenured, full professor, did, did all the things in that world. Mm-hmm. I got my doctoral degree, you know, um, really leaned in and always said, I'm going to be able to write as an academic, as a scholar, but I've never sacrificed my creative voice, uh, mm-hmm. primarily in poetry, sometimes also in the essay form, but I never mm-hmm. sacrificed my personal creative voice, even as I developed the capacity to speak in this other way for mm-hmm. those uh, kinds of audiences. But as I got into leadership roles, which happened first at Antioch, I began to create curriculum. I began to create programs. I began to lean into what doesn't exist that could exist in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point, I left Antioch and moved to New Mexico and came at the invitation of the Institute of American Indian Arts. And this is because I have a long background as an ally and advocate in Indian country, mm-hmm. a long involvement specifically in the Great Lakes uh, territory with the Anishinaabe peoples and studied the language and so on. Um, So based on those commitments and that work, when I came to the Institute of American Indian Arts, you know, I said, look, I'm not a tribal member, but I am committed to service. And I I was brought on. And in the time there, I created four new academic programs. And one of Mm -hmm. them, the first, their first graduate program, they had just gone from a two year to a four year. And I created a new four-year degree in for native leadership training called Indigenous Liberal Studies. Um, and then I created their first graduate program, an MFA in creative writing. And uh, Jamie Figueroa graduated from that program that I yes. created. And she was in the first class. Um, and I was, I've known Jamie a long time, and I was the one that pushed her to come to IA to complete her BFA in creative writing. She'd started in other programs and that pathway then you know, has been a place she's flourished. And I knew, you know, I knew at IAIA, this doesn't exist. And it took me six years to create their first master's program. I had so much resistance Mm -hmm. from from so many levels, but ultimately succeeded. And I knew it would be the only graduate program in the United States, in the world, dedicated to Native American literature. 
it is the only one. It was when it started. It still is. It may be for a very long time. And the next generation of Native authors and speakers and writers are coming up and coming through there. Mm-hmm. And so I left there to go to Southwestern College. And at Southwestern, I've also had the chance to really lean into the spaces. And the school's mission is transforming consciousness through education. And I was like, I can lean into that mission. Mm-hmm. And I can create programs out of that mission. The school's uh, heritage, it's, it's, it's 45 years. And it has sort of been known as a counseling and art therapy school, art therapy being the largest program, mm-hmm. so the art therapy counseling master's program. And we have also a clinic that we operate and we serve uh, low income. And in our location, our primary services to Hispanic women and families mm-hmm. because we're on the far south side of Santa Fe and that is the community around the school. It is the low income part of Santa Fe, very high immigrant community mm-hmm. from the south. Mm-hmm. So we're frontline providers in, in our place there. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, well, the school has a very very long history of counseling and art therapy. It has done beautiful service. It will con- will continue to grow that. We'll continue to uh, cultivate bilingual therapists and, and bring them into our uh, Tierra Nueva Counseling Center. And so we'll continue to build just like at IA, continue what is, continue to strengthen what is, but what is not yet. Mm-hmm. And for me there, they had only master's degrees. And I'm like, what about a doctoral program? <laughs> Uh, and they're like, okay, Anne. So this is my leadership creative space. I get to invent what is not. So we've just launched our first PhD program. We went through all the accreditation steps and I've learned all the language because it's all language. All language. <laughs> all language. You just got to learn the terms, what they mean and how to use them, right? Yeah. So I'm willing because I know language is endless and spacious. So I'm mm-hmm. willing to learn the language. I need to learn to master what I want to accomplish. I'm not afraid of that. I will go in. I will learn. I will be willing to be a student of yet another language family, whether it's the language of higher education accreditation or the language of therapeutic service or the language of foundations and fundraisers. Like I, I will lean in. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing. And so mm-hmm. I'm not a master of all these languages, but I'm, a, I'm willing to engage with them. So um, we got our first PhD in the language. The title of it was super important. It took us a while. And it's the PhD in visionary practice and regenerative leadership. And Marianella has agreed to join <laughs> as one of our faculty yes. members. I'm so <laughs> excited. Um, and so this meant something that, mm-hmm. that nothing exists with this name. We're creating mm-hmm. original space, a unique transdisciplinary applied doctoral space to support people coming forward with a visionary idea, something they'd like to do. Like mm-hmm. I said, I like that what is not yet space. Mm-hmm. And I want to work with adult learners who have a yearning, a longing, a possibility, a potentiality, something in the what is not yet space that a doctoral program can help them get up the skills, the research techniques, the investigation, um, and and put ground underneath this idea so that they can then step into the world and bring something unique. So I'm, I'm that is, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I am also honored and excited to be joining in that um, new venture because as you were saying, you know, you're, 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 you're leading, you're creating, you're generating from plenitude, from this idea of possibilities in the what is, right? As opposed to approaching it with the constricted mind of not enoughness. You're right. not, you're not going there. And the other thing that excites me um, about joining the, the venture with you is that you are shaping people from a collective paradigm, which I know is the, the paradigm that has sustained the world. Unfortunately, modernity, right, has embraced this individualistic paradigm that has plagued, that has us in the crisis we are right now. So when I find an institution, a group of people that are leaning into a collective thinking to make things possible, I'm like, yeah, right. sign me in, I'm coming, <laughs> because that's what has kept us alive. I and the future is in the collective. I completely agree. Yeah, we've really run the course of this uh, individuality, you know, mm -hmm. adoration, and mm. it's over. And the yeah. stories about it, of the individual hero or mm. even the individual shiro, mm -hmm. like the new model has to be the we. Yes. We. Yes. Because there's never going to be survival without we. Mm -hmm. We cannot flourish without we. Yeah. And how we extend that we even across species, mm -hmm. even across, you know, we do not survive without water. Therefore, what should our right relationship be with water? Exactly. You know, we don't survive without soil. Mm -hmm. What should our right relationship be with soil? And how do we bring this into, into the collective consciousness? You know, mm -hmm. I, one of the things I just love that the um, Maori accomplished in New Zealand, you know, because in, in uh, international law, as well as in this U.S., corporations mm -hmm. get to be persons. Yes. And the Maori were like, first of all, we can all critique that. And again, the, the heralding of the individual over everything else, and then the making of this into an individual, like that all has to be deconstructed. Mm -hmm. But then they took a river and they said, the river must be regarded as a person. Yes. It must exactly. have the voice of a person. And they finally got the national government to recognize the river as a person and appoint a council to be the intermediary. So no thing could happen to that river without the river being represented. Yeah. That's the future for me. That's where we as humankind have to go for mm -hmm. the generations that will follow us to be able to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm saying, I don't know if you saw my head was like <laughs> going like this, because that's the language that speaks to me. And I, you know, one of the podcasts I did was with a wise man um, from Don Oscar, um, a shaman, and um, he is from Ecuador. And he was talking about that. And I, you know, I was I was telling him about the the concept that was popularized by 
Tignaham, this idea of interbeing and that every living thing is in relationship, right? We are in relationship with one another, and that's that's how we are able to um, to 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 preserve life and in the and its extension and, and its many manifestations. So he was also saying how they had begun. Um, you know, naming, not begun, that that's the tradition of naming mountains and that when, uh, and rivers and, and, and that when they are in a difficult place, they turn to the mountain with the questions and they wait until they hear the answer. Yes. Right? Right. Right. So that's profound. And right. at the same time, it's so um, assuring. Like, yeah, we're not going to perish. Yes. We have all this vastness that is right. here. We might go through some difficult moments, but we're not going to perish that easily. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad um, that we are here having this conversation. I know that <clears throat> one of the experiences... Um, perhaps the longest you had in terms of interbeing, um, interrelating with someone was your your experience with grandmother Key. Yes. Can you tell us about yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, like a summarized version yeah. who she was, how she enriched your life and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, Marianella. I'd be happy to. I mean because I'm deeply uh, marked by that engagement, by that relationship, by that yeah. love story. I'm, I'm you know, yeah. um, but again, so back to, you know, that girl growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in this house that was designed, you know, for like mom and dad and two kids. And it had us, that's why it felt we were, we were living in a house designed not for the size family we were right in a suburban white community. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was supposed to be kind of the arrival at the American dream. You're in this, my father was from, you know, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Irish Catholic. Uh, my mother was from a farm community in Virginia. Um, so they met and this was like the aspiration. You, you're in the suburbs, it's supposed to be good. It was not good. And mm-hmm. I saw that was not just true in my house. That was true in the houses around. People weren't happy. They were struggling. They were fighting. There was great discontent and I was like this is the life I'm being geared toward like to get a job in in a way that I might not believe or feel aligned and then just to show up every day for my paycheck and then to pay the bills but then I never quite have enough to pay the bills and then you know I just saw the extreme uh like this can't be what I'm supposed to do with my life you know this can't be it and maybe because I was journaling all that childhood all that teenagehood I was tracking myself and I was seeing this cannot be the answer and so I began in my teenage years to seek what are other ways of being what are other ways of doing you know what are other ways of knowing because this is not you know, this is not good what we're doing. And even then in the seventies, you know, it was clear that we were in an environmental disaster, even though we didn't yet have Mm -hmm. the language around climate change or climate crisis. It was already well-documented that the way that the culture was moving was destroying 
nature, the systems we depended on for our life. And mm. so that disconnect really troubled me and I wanted out of it some way. And I began like, what else? And um, that seeking really led me to look at native cultures. And I lived, my, by this point, my family had moved to Wisconsin and there are many tribal communities there. And I began to, to see the struggles those communities were in. There were issues, mm. struggles, and I began to get to lean in and say, what are they struggling? What are the issues? What has happened? Mm. Um, and and what, where do I want to land? Because I'm more aligned with the values that those communities are espousing than I am aligned with the values that I was raised with. Mm. So it was my seeking. Um, and my own personal feeling in nature, once my parents moved to Wisconsin, I had access to nature, I had access to forests, I had access mm -hmm. to lakes and woodlands and the, and the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan, the shoreline, this mm -hmm. fabulous, unbelievable, talk about an expanse of beautiful yes. water. And so I felt as I had felt as in the library as a child, oh, this is where I belong. Oh, this is very calming. This is truly nurturing. This is where life force energy is located. This is the source of everything. Um, and, and that got me interested in plant medicines as the source of healing. And through that, I met this native elder named Kiwe Denokwe, who um, the way we met is I was uh, 20, I was volunteering at an herb store named Archangel Herbs. I was living at this point in Milwaukee, first time on my own, having a job and doing, beginning my life, having graduated with an art degree in college and not, what am I going to do now kind of thing. And the woman who ran the herb store was bringing key to do a talk. Mm. And I remember it cost $50. This is where the scarcity piece, it cost $50. There was well, no that was a lot then. <laughs> It was no possible way that I could put together $50, like 50 cents I can spare, $50, that was beyond. So I said to Mary, and I was volunteering just to learn from her and the other herbalists that came in and herbalism at this time was still kind of over here off the beaten mm. track. So there was like this subculture of plant medicine mm. people that I was connecting with, mostly older women actually that were there in that space. So, so I said, I will do anything. I will do anything, Mary. I will help you. I will do anything. I will clean your house. I will do anything to come. And she said, okay, I'm the host. And these, you know, people are coming. So if you just sit next to this elder, just sit next to her. If she needs a break, if she needs a glass of water, you just do your job is to give her whatever she needs, make sure she's taken care of. So I literally sat on the floor next to her in this living room and this big, you know, room with all these uh, people that came to hear her speak. And the first one of the first, it was in a suburb of Milwaukee called Wauwatosa. And one of the first things she said is, oh, what a pretty name, Wauwatosa. This town is named for the firefly. And of course, the people there didn't had no idea. Nobody knew that. Right? They were like, wait, what did she say? What did she say? And they were kind of rude. I mean, they were just kind of demanding, like, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And she was sort of take, I could feel her like go like. Mm -hmm. And then she turned to me and she said, uh, tell the tell the good people what I said. And I said, Oh, she said, Wabatesi, uh, what a beautiful name for this town. It's based on the firefly. 
So the whole weekend, everything she said that they asked her to repeat, which is highly rude with traditional elders, completely out of bounds. She turned to me and said, tell the good people what I said. So she, I didn't know she was testing me because it's an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. did she get it? Did she Mm -hmm. hear it? Can she repeat it? So we were in this space together where I'm just intently listening and then repeating. And she's, um, because maybe I was tuned to language, right? I'd already been tuned. You were trained. I was diary. (laughs) I was ready to listen. So at the end of it, the weekend, she said, I would like to invite you to visit me on my island. Hmm. I said, I would love to come to your island. And so that began our relationship. I, she spent her summers on a wilderness island where she did traditional ceremony and, and work with traditional plant medicines. Mm-hmm. I uh, went and I spent 20 years of my life studying with her. Uh, I worked with her. She got a job at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Native American Studies program. And she asked me to be her graduate teaching and research assistant. So I then ended up in that space with many different cultural groups because it served all of the culture groups in Wisconsin and they're different, Mm -hmm. different languages, they have different traditions. So Mm -hmm. it kind of got me in a world where I was the only or one of the very few non-tribal members, you know, Mm -hmm. in that uh, community of the Native American Mm -hmm. Studies Program. Mm -hmm. So it got me in that experience of being in that place and just showing up and doing my best and learning and being being a culture bridge person, being a bridge between cultures and serving uh, what she was trying to accomplish, which was mm-hmm. a deep, a pressing sense that if she didn't do her part to preserve the values that she was raised with and the cultural traditions, that the earth was gonna be in worse shape. Yeah. And she, one of the things she said whenever we parted is she would say travel with conscious care because you carry the seeds of the future how beautiful so travel with conscious care because you carry the seed of this the future beautiful so she passed in 1999 Mm. and didn't get to see a number of things that have happened, like really the renaissance of native cultures and indigenous Mm. values. Mm. At the time that she asked me to really study with her, there were not so many people in her own community because Mm. it was still, you know, it was not until 1978 and the American Indian Freedom of Religious Act passed by the US Congress. Until then her life way, her belief system was outlawed. And there were still people in her community unwilling to uh, risk it. And also there were many people in the Great Lakes. It was primarily the Catholic mission Mm -hmm. that came through and many tribal people had been Catholicized. Yeah. And so they... The conversions are still in action. Yeah. So she, in those, some of those worldviews, she was accused of, of negative witchcraft because she knew these old ways. Wow. Wow. So, um, you know, so she had to suffer that accusation. She, she also, then other people critiqued her for taking non-tribal members as spiritual students or as Mm. carriers. So she was criticized for that. Mm. Certainly I've had that uh, leveraged. I've had that kind of criticism that I'm misappropriating Mm. or appropriating Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I just have to say, I understand the perspective. And I also want mm-hmm. you to know that I spent 20 years with this person and she asked me to continue. And mm-hmm. I agreed, you know, mm-hmm. I, I made a commitment yeah. and I'm going to carry on, even if I'm misunderstood or criticized, you know, in that yeah. state. So you've, you've been on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, now you were there as the person who was taken in as an ally, and now you are here trying to move forward, move the, the, the message forward. And, you know, you, you mentioned preservation and, and revival, um, and, and these are ongoing efforts for Indigenous people. I know you know, in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, the Avia Jala is, is the great movement, the great, um, you know, call for us. They even the, the indigenous people are saying, don't say America anymore, because mm. that was, you know, after um, uh, one of the colonizers, America was named, call it Avia Jala, right? So uh, some scholars are, you know, beginning for the last, I want to say 30 something years, are making an effort. But still, you know, I might say Abhi Ajala in my communities and people go like, what? What did you say? So the the preservation and the revival is an ongoing effort that we must um, go, because if we don't do it, what we're talking about is erasure and other forms of genocide. Right? right, that's what we are up against. So, in that sense, and this is my last question, because I just realized time is flying. <laughs> what, what are some thoughts you have? Um, you have seen so much in terms of the power of the collective in restoring sovereignty for indigenous people. What are some ways that we can continue? I mean, I, I, one easy way is like, yeah, you're doing it through the college. You're creating all these opportunities of learning from a paradigm that is sustainable, right? And we already spoke about that. Are there other ways that we can lean in to, to keep sustaining the world in a way that's not, going to so easily collapse? I love that question. You know, I think we have to keep interrupting our own uh, colonization. Mm-hmm. Just have to keep noticing it when our inner dominator or inner colonial mindset shows up and mm-hmm. we retract into our individuality and trying to protect our individual ego or something. Mm-hmm. Just have to keep waking up because we're going to fall into those patterns. I'm going to fall into those patterns, no matter how many years, you know, I studied with her for 20 years and I've carried on, you know, since then. So it's, you know, a long chapter of my life since 1979, when we first met until 2023. And still with all of that, let's say opportunity for, for training and for um, attending to my own nature and decolonizing my mind and patterns, I still will catch things. Yes. So, you know, that's one piece we have to be able, we have to be willing to do with it with ourselves. Um, And then one of my favorite stories coming out of uh, when I was at IA, it's one of the tribal colleges, and there are maybe 36 tribal colleges in the U.S. And one of the great stories out of the tribal college movement 
is the story that the Kellogg Foundation in Michigan invited all the tribal colleges to submit grants for some mm -hmm. opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then they awarded this pot of money to one of the tribal colleges. The president of that tribal college went back to the Kellogg Foundation and he said, how many tribal colleges applied? And he, they were like, well, 10 of them. And he said, then I want every single one of them to receive some of the funds that you want to award mm. to us. Wow. And he held yeah. a, one stick up and he goes, if one tribal college makes it, it can be broken like this. If yeah. 10 tribal colleges make it, it's harder to break us. That's the thinking that of is so beautiful. That's it. That's it. That's it. It's, it's so um, just right before you, I was in a session and I was talking to the person. The person doesn't speak Spanish, but I was, I say, there is something that we said that I don't ever want to forget because it has helped me in always in my life and I was inviting this young woman to find ways of substance for her and I say is this phrase la unión hace la fuerza meaning union gives us power mm. right without mm. that in that like I grew up with that like all the protests on the streets, all the riots were like, la unión hace la fuerza. And, and that's the truth. And, 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 and he was, you know, when, when I heard you um, tell this story, like I got goosebumps because I'm like, yeah, yeah, that is true. And how beautiful, right? So you, what you're saying is one way is to catch ourselves acting from the colonized paradigm of I'm my own person and finding ways to redirect to I am because you are, right? The, the Ubuntu principle and how can we share the resources we have so we can all benefit from it. Exactly. So that's one way. Yeah, I think that's... Mm. You know, Tell and, us some more. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a powerful way. I think, you know, another way that we remind us of the we is through language mm -hmm. and how we might catch ourselves in I statements. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, you know, some people lowercase I instead mm -hmm. of, in terms of written words. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I said, yes, that, or you can start to uppercase we, and mm -hmm. we can start to uppercase us. Mm -hmm. Yes, know? yes. And we can catch ourselves. I think another, a paradigm I've been thinking about lately, another example, mm -hmm. and this is from an old story. And this is from, you know, the Iroquois nation up in upstate New York area. Mm -hmm. When in a time pre-contact, there was a lot of intertribal warfare. And there was a lot of, you know, you killed my son, I'm going to kill your, you know, mm -hmm. nephew. Mm -hmm. you, you know, there was a mm -hmm. lot of revenge and, yeah. and back and forth. And there was a person named who's named in history and held as the peacekeeper. Mm -hmm. The peacekeeper set up his lodge in the center of the conflict, mm -hmm. in the center of the war. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to remain here. And who will join me? 
and a woman joined him and her name was Jaconsonse. And Jaconsonse joined him and she was a healer. And mm -hmm. she said, I will heal all wounded, all fallen, not just from one side or the other. Now, of course, the two of them came out of some of those specific groups, but they located themselves in the center and said, we're here to serve all. Mm -hmm. We will serve all people who come. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, over time, their compassionate commitment to staying in the center of the conflict and serving all people, regardless of their ideology, their mm -hmm. political affiliation, their identity, their tribal identity, just serving everyone who came to them with need, whether it was spiritual need, physical need, everyone, and, and giving up in a way their individual alliance to their individual group, being willing to take that risk mm -hmm. and to stand in the center of conflict. Yeah. Over time, uh, the great law of peace emerged from this. They uh, planted a white pine to signify this. And the term bury the hatchet comes from the peace council that huh. they buried their weapons. Uh -huh. And they said, we will fight amongst ourselves no longer. Hmm. Uh, the Tuscarora came to join them. It was the Seneca, the Mohawk, hmm. the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. And they joined and they made a great confederacy. And it was that confederacy that the Europeans who came out of monarchies, who'd never seen anything like a confederacy, mm. they designed their democratic structure from the Iroquois confederacy, from that structure. But the history of how they got there mm. had to do with the willingness to serve all regardless and to, and to be willing to be in the difficult and fraught space where the in the center of the conflict without taking sides. Yeah. In our time right now, oh, how hard this is. That's what I was just thinking. I'm thinking about this war or, or the many, but you know, that this latest one with Ukraine and, and, and Russia and, you know, these many countries that are um, on at war right now. And if we look again, is the individualistic thinking, is the toxic masculinity that I'm going to grow and I'm going to show how powerful I am. That's what's causing that. And that we have this antidote that's not new, that has been here for so many generations that we can all take. And we so we have to start in ourselves, right? Yeah. So for me, the personal practice is not to make anyone my enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just no matter who, no matter who wants to make me their enemy, mm -hmm. just to not take it, to, to, to do yeah. my work, to not make any enemies, that to is. not take up arms in myself against you know, this, this ideologue or this person or, and I'm in a leadership role. So it's easy mm -hmm. to make me an enemy. If you don't agree mm -hmm. with something the institution is doing, or I'm easily cast as the enemy. And I understand that's part of leadership and that's part of the yeah. dominator culture. And that's part of colonial mind. And I have to constantly take it down. So I don't participate. Yeah. So I go to the person who I've heard is, saying this disparaging thing. And I sit down and I say, you know, I heard you were upset about this. 
I'd like, I'd like to hear from you about it. I'd, I'd like to listen. Um, I'd like to understand your perspective. And I might not be able to give you all the information you want because there may be confidential parts in this, but I'm what I can share, I want to share with you. So I have to always not take the invitation to make anyone my enemy. And, and that's the inner work that the peacekeeper and Je Consense had to do being raised in a conflictual space where wow. there was a culture of enemy making mm -hmm. as a daily practice. And yeah. we're living in a society where the culture of enemy making is a daily practice. So we have to kind of every day go, you know, I'm not going to even make, you know, that Trumper my enemy. I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm not going to make that neo-Nazi my enemy. I'm not, I mean, I'm invited to make enemies every day, all day long. How do I keep myself human among humans? And then a species among species, and then a form of life among forms of life. Like, how do I keep going with the practice? That is so beautiful. The not making of enemies. What a good way to, to close this. What a great invitation, because it is something that we can turn into a daily practice. That commitment that we're not going to take um, conflict, which is such a human thing as the ground for creating enemies, but as the ground for um, practicing equanimity and, and, and growing love, which is the answer, right? Yes, Basically. Exactly. Marianella, <laughs> you named it exactly. Growing love. You, you said it. Thank you so, so much. And what a pleasure to, to hear you and to, um, um, to, to appreciate more closely uh, the work, the beautiful work you are doing out there in the world. Thank you, Marianella. Thank you for your work and for your leadership. And I'm just so happy we're working together in this new doctoral yeah. program. And we'll work together in all kinds of ways, but certainly also for growing love. Yes, we have work in some projects and poetry has united us. So yeah. beautiful. Thank you. And thank you for listening to What a Word is Word. You can access today's interview at Anchor, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you are interested, hit the subscribe button and, uh, in your podcast app. And also, if you like what you heard today, let us know. It is important. Or if, if there is something you want us to do better, also let us know. We are here. I am with you in love and compassion, always, always, always.